morning. Do please keep your Bibles open and let me pray for us as we look at this passage. Some words, words from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And so, Father, we pray as we look at this chapter this morning, this extraordinary account of Naboth and his vineyard, we pray that we might know something of the sweetness of your word, that you might give us a joy as we see who you are, the way that you deal with your people, as we reflect again upon your character. Be with us, we pray, in your Son's name. Amen. Sometimes um, sometimes there are discussions about politics and particularly whether the Christian faith has any place at all in the political realm. So the argument grows, well, it's great for you to have your beliefs, but, but please don't bring them to work with you. Don't let your private beliefs, your ideas, influence what you're like in the workplace, in Parliament even. Don't let them shape you or, or your principles or your priorities or your practices. Keep them for home time. Keep them for Sunday mornings. Very famously, back in 2003, it seems, on, on a number of occasions, when Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the time, was being interviewed, Alastair Campbell, do you remember the Director of Strategy and Communications, we might call him a chaperone, um, famously intervened preventing the Prime Minister from answering a question about his faith. Do you, do you remember the comment? We, we don't do God, he said, more than once. And yet whoever we are, our, our fundamental and foundational beliefs or non-beliefs about the world, about who we are, about God, and frankly whether we believe in him or not, will ultimately shape what we do. And why we do it. And how we do it. And for a politician who believes in God, well, of course, their policies, their priorities will be shaped by that. It's a nonsense to say that we can divorce the two. I find it striking as we reach 1 Kings 21 that we see something again of of Ahab's godlessness revealed in how he treats people. Normal people. Do you remember the idea from last week in these final three chapters of 1 Kings? King Ahab is under the spotlight and he is in the dock. But we're seeing the depths to which the king has sunk. And so the writer is carefully selecting and stacking up different strands of evidence for us. Showing us what Ahab is like. Last week, it was big picture, macro scale, zoomed right out. There were foreign treaties instead of dealing with enemy kings. This week, little picture, micro scale, zoomed right in. How does he deal with this family? At the heart of the chapter, we see the Lord's passionate concern for justice. 
But we see as well the contrast with Ahab and Jezebel's deceitful, manipulative schemes. So we'll jump straight in. We're going to divide the passage in two. And in the first half, you'll see verse 1 to 16, the fruit of ignoring the Bible. Let me read again to us from verse 1 to 3. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Let me have your vineyard, uh, sorry, uh, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. It's an ancient version of grand designs. The king wants to expand his land. There's, there's a nice vineyard next door to the palace owned by a chap called Naboth. If he could have that, he could get some more space for vegetables. And to be fair, he's prepared to pay for it. He's prepared even to swap it for something better. And so so where's the harm in that? At first glance, the story does seem a bit weird. Do, Do vineyards matter that much? Why won't Naboth swap it or sell it? What is actually going on here? I think it all comes down to verse 3, that word there, inheritance. Keep a hold of that word in your mind for this morning. By inheritance in the land, we don't mean simply what you pass on to the next generation, although it would include that. We mean what is given to you and your family by God. Because you see, when the people first arrived in the land, he, he divided up the land into 12 different tribes and the different families within them. And that bit of land was permanently your patch. That was for you. It was for you to cultivate and to be fruitful and to live off. It brought an income for you and for future generations. It was your land. But there was small print. When it came to selling your bit of land, that was possible if it was really, really, really necessary. You could sell your inheritance if it was a must. Let me read you a little bit from Leviticus 25. The Lord says this. He says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of the property... Their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it for themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay what was sold, will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. So so two things, complicated, but two things. One, the land belongs to the Lord. It is his. He has shared it out among his people. It's his. They live in his land. But also, did you spot it? You could sell your bit if you really had to because you were facing hardships. And if you get money later on, you can buy it back again. But if not, then the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, it would be returned to you. So the small print in the law says, possibly, you can sell your bit of land. But not to Naboth, he doesn't need to. 
It's the land of his family. He is looking after it. He is stewarding it for the Lord. And so Naboth says no, and Ahab goes into a grump. Verse 4. He went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Which is where Jezebel then comes in. If you've been here in previous weeks, you'll know something of Jezebel. She's not a nice piece of work. She has led her husband astray. She has led the people astray as they worship Baal and Asherah. But more than that, she has zealously murdered the Lord's prophets. And she comes in and she rolls her eyes at her pathetic husband. He reminds us a bit of a teenager. And she comes in with her awful plan of action. Pick it up with me, verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In these letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting, give Naboth a prominent seat among the people, put two scoundrels opposite him, and get them to bring charges that he's cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And they do. At that point, it's not just Jezebel who's indicted. There is this this web of deceit that has been spun. Ahab is there as well. They are his letterheads, his seal. He's not intervened. The elders and the nobles of Naboth city are indicted because they have enacted the plan. The two lying scoundrels, maybe even those who have stoned him, It's a horrible picture of the people of God at the time. The the innocent, godly man, it seems, who has regard for the word of God is murdered. And the sinful, godless leaders enact the queen's wishes and get away with it. They seem to. In fact, it's worse than that. If you read 2 Kings 9, it becomes clear that Naboth's sons are stoned as well. It's not just him. It's those who would receive their inheritance from him. So the land doesn't pass on to them. And so Ahab, he gets what he wants. Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. He shows kindness and mercy to foreign kings under the guise of being politically astute last week. But this week, he, or at least his wife, manipulates and manufactures a situation where Naboth and his family, his descendants, are just rubbed out, removed from the equation. And Ahab can have his vegetables. Do you see why the story is included? Because it shows us what Ahab is like at ground level. He has no concern for the word of the Lord, no concern for doing things God's way. 
He and his family are driven by appetites and desires rather than by what God says. You know, right through the Bible story, there is a strand of, of social justice that is seen as God's people live under his rightful rule. The outcasts are generously provided for. The, the widows and the foreigners and the strangers are shown grace and kindness. The, the little people are looked after. It's never survival of the fittest in the law of the Lord. People are valued because they are made in the image of their creator, not because of how useful they are or how high up the ladder they might be. And the king was meant to be a servant. He was meant to be one who lived under the rule of God, under the word of God, and he ruled by the word of God, the rule of God. He was to show the world that life under God's word was good. It was how it was meant to be. It was what we were made for. And this little episode in 1 Kings 21 shows us the fruit of a rudderless life. When God's word is not directing you, when there is no higher authority, when it's all about what you want and getting what you want, then your appetite rules and your desires rule and you'll do just about anything to get it. And you think you're free, but actually your desires enslave you. That might involve Jezebel-style manipulation, control, deceit, dishonesty to get what we want. Sadly, it often does to varying degrees. And we're blind to it and we justify it because we're not prepared to bow to God's word. There's a snapshot again of how Ahab rules unjustly, selfishly, how he treats his subjects. But I wonder if there's more going on in this story, in this account. I don't want to push it too far. But I think the story is also a parable. I don't want to say either or, but both and. What do I mean? Well, Israel was called a a vineyard. It's right through the Bible. Let me read to you, though, from Isaiah 3. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty? Do you see, God's people are a vineyard. But it's more than that. The imagery often assigned to Egypt is that of a vegetable garden. Deuteronomy 11, verse 10, the land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. So through the Bible, we've got these two images of vineyards and vegetable gardens representing God's people and not God's people, particularly Egypt. And so maybe this story was picked not just to show us what Ahab was like, just a snapshot of the reality of his rule. But maybe we're meant to realize the writer saying to us, do you see what's happening? It's as if, it's as if the people are going back to Egypt again. They've been rescued from, from slavery, from Egyptian gods, from, from oppression and hardship. They've been given the law, guided through the wilderness, 
led into the promised land, and now, now they're returning from whence they've come. Now they're being shackled. They're not being different and distinctive and attractive to show the world what life under God's word looks like. They're, they're just reverting to what they used to be. Being the same as everyone else. And at this point, at this point in the story, it looks like God has either taken his eyes off the ball, or he's not awake, or else he's not able to do anything about it. They seem to get away with it. Naboth and his family are wiped off the face of the earth. But then we reach verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Ahab and Jezebel's deeds have not gone unnoticed by the Lord. They may have ignored him, but he has not ignored them. And so in the second half, we see the consequences of ignoring God. Verse 17 to 29. No one is exempt from the judgment of a holy God, not even his king. In the second half, God deals with them for their deeds. Verse 17, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in possession of Naboth's vineyard. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man who sees his property? And, and then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. You see, just as Ahab had removed, destroyed, wiped out, obliterated Naboth and his family, so the same will come. To Ahab. Naboth's blood cries for vengeance. And vengeance he will receive. And just as evil kings Jeroboam and Baasha had experienced in years gone by, so Ahab will in years to come. Notice, notice that this passage and the Bible at the grander scale does not promise his people immunity. From hardship. That ought to be clear and plain as we hear and read and, and pray for persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, as Jill led us earlier. It ought to be clear and plain, I know, for some people in, in this room. They look at their own situations and lives, seeking to live for the Lord. It doesn't promise us immunity from hardship, but it does promise us justice. Finally, for those who do wrong, there will be an accountability. There will be an answer. A day when they will stand before a righteous God and when wrongs will be righted. It doesn't promise us immunity, but it does promise justice. The, um, the theologian and author Chris Wright, some of you will have heard of or read his stuff, um, he tells the incredible story of an encounter he had with a young Indian man at a medical conference. A man whose life was completely transformed by 
by this chapter, by 1 Kings 21, he came face to face with God. It's a long story, but it's amazing. So I had to share it with you. So please bear with me. It's extraordinary. Chris Wright writes this of this man. He said he grew up in one of the many backward and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. At university, he was contacted in the early days of his college by some Christian students who gave him a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at first for Christians. It happened that the first thing he read in his Bible was this chapter, 1 Kings 21, the story of Naboth, Ahab and Jezreel. And he was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing to him was that the fact that God would took Naboth's side. He not only accused Ahab and Jezreel of their wrongdoing, but he also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real actions against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament history and found his first impression confirmed. He went on to read the books of the law and his amazement grew. God, he cried out, even though he didn't know who he was talking to. You're so perfect, you think of everything. He found himself praising this God he didn't know. You're so just, you're so perfect, you're so holy, he would exclaim. Believing this was the kind of God that answered the need of his own angry struggle. And then he came upon Isaiah 43 and verse 1. And he came to an abrupt halt. Because the end of Isaiah 42 describes Israel's sin and God's just punishment. But suddenly and unexpectedly, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. I I couldn't take that, he said. I was attracted to the God of justice and holiness. I ran away from a God of love. But he couldn't. It was about then that the Christian friends came and explained more about God's faithfulness and justice and love on the cross. And he came at last to understand and to surrender to the God he had found in the Old Testament and his life was transformed through faith in Christ. God is indeed a God of real justice, a God who takes actions. Did you spot the end of chapter 21? The last few verses. It's happened pretty much every week, but there's been a surprising turn at the end of the account. Maybe this week it's two surprising turns. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Two surprises. One is how Ahab responds to the Lord. And two, surely it's how the Lord responds to Ahab. Nothing here about Jezebel. 
But how does Ahab react? In sackcloth and repentance. No longer is he lying around sulking and in a huff. It's at the start of the chapter. Now he is lying around in sackcloth and humility. No longer is fasting the way that they seem to to get Naboth and to kill him. Now he is fasting and asking for forgiveness. And if we're cynical about this, which we have every right to be, well, we must trust verse 28. It seems to be legit. He's humbled himself. The Lord has noticed that he's humbled himself. The Lord who knows hearts. And as always, with genuine repentance before the Lord, comes the Lord relenting, slow to anger, abounding in love, and so his judgment is delayed. His judgment is delayed, which is great news for people like us. Do you see why? Because he is, because he is gracious and patient, patient and delays his judgment, well, today even is an example of that. Has it struck you that because Jesus did not return yesterday, there are people all over the world who for the first time today have bowed the knee to him? Today. I did a bit of research. And it's pretty generous, broad definitions of self-identification of being a Christian and using very rough figures. But it looks like people estimate about three million people turning to Christ each year. Three million conversions. That doesn't include children born into Christian families. But three, brand new, three million brand new conversions per year. And if you boil that right down, it comes to about 8,200 per day which is about 342 per hour, which is about five people a minute, which is one person every 12 seconds. Wait, 12 seconds? Now don't come and collar me afterwards. Of course there are questions, of course it's rough. Of course there are assumptions being made. But as a rough snapshot, isn't that extraordinary? Isn't the Lord's patience and grace a good thing as his judgment is delayed? It's a great thing for for our friends and colleagues and neighbours and family whom we dearly love and we pray for, longing that they would respond to Christ. If you're here this morning and have never trusted Jesus for yourself, Maybe you think your history is too bad, or maybe you think it's too late. It's never, it's never too late. Make no mistake, the Lord is just and pure and holy, and we've seen that very clearly in this passage. But he is gracious and patient. He delays his judgment for people like you and people like me. Because, of course, this passage points us ahead It points us ahead to a story that Jesus told in the Gospels. Very similar themes, very similar setting. So we're in the temple with Jesus. He's approaching the cross and he is describing his own treatment at the hands of the religious leaders in terms of, do you remember, a a vineyard. And he tells them a story. He tells them a story about a vineyard rented to the people by a landowner, and yet they rebel against this landowner. 
They won't give him what he's due. And so Jesus says the leaders are evil and murderous and self-seeking. They, they seek, seek to seize the vineyard for themselves. They take advantage of the people of God for personal gain. And in Jesus' story, they persecute and they murder first the prophets and then the son of the vineyard owner. And they say, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And the story ends when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about them. The vineyard, the people of God, Jesus, the vineyard owner's son, he will be the one they kill. You see, corrupt, self-serving leadership did not stop with Ahab. Far from it. It continued to Jesus' day and beyond. People manipulate and abuse the Lord's people, for their own profit and their own gain. And after they had stitched Jesus up, Naboth style, with false witnesses, with accusations, with trumped up charges in court, after they had showed their contempt to the Lord, they killed him on a cross. It's very striking. In a sense, Jesus as the vineyard owner's son in his story, well, it's as if he is the, he's the willing Naboth. In 1 Kings 21, he is willing and prepared to die at the hands of corrupt leadership for the sake of the Lord's vineyard, for the sake of the people of God. Why? Why? To secure an inheritance forever for the Lord's people. So let me finish this morning with the Apostle Peter encouraging us as Christians, broken Christians, crying out for mercy, encouraging us to keep going. Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you were willing to be murdered at the hands of corrupt leadership. We thank you that you faithfully obeyed your Father as you went to the cross. We thank you that you were willing to die to gain an inheritance for your people, for your vineyard. And we thank you that that inheritance is is kept for us. Thank you for your delayed judgment. Thank you for your patience and kindness and graciousness. Thank you that you are good to us, even though we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.